Today we're talking to Sam from Financial Samurai. He left his full-time job at age 34, and he is famous for negotiating his severance, and he helped his wife go through the process of negotiating her severance too. And this is a controversial topic in the financial independence community, which means we can't wait to chat about it and share it with you. We also talked a lot about family planning and when the best time to have kids is and what the costs are beyond the financial of having children. We can't wait to share this with you. Let's get in it. Sam the Family Man. Welcome to Fire Drill Podcast, where side hustles, savings, and creativity lead to financial independence. With your hosts, Gwen from Fiery Millennials and Jay from Millennial Boss. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Fire Drill. We are so lucky to have Sam from Financial Samurai here with us. Hey Sam. How's it going ladies? Awesome. And Gwen's here too. Hello. Hello. So Sam, can you please tell us your life story in 90 seconds? 90 seconds. All right. I was born to U.S. Foreign Service officers. I was born in Manila, Philippines, and then I lived in Asia all around in Malaysia, Taiwan, Japan, and then Zambia for the first 13 years. Went to high school in McLean, Virginia. It's Northern Virginia. Then I went to college in Virginia. Went to New York City to work in investment banking from 1999 to 2012. Decided to engineer my layoff because I was sick of it. And I figured, hey, maybe there could be life after finance because I started Financial Samurai in 2009, three years before I left banking. And so I have been on my own since 2012, and it's been a great ride. It's been so, so awesome. We've traveled a lot around the world. My wife also engineered her layoff at the age of 35, so that was several years ago. And now we are both full-time, stay-at-home, work-from-home parents. How's that? That was awesome. I didn't realize that you had such an international upbringing. I missed that part. Yeah, my father... And mother were in the foreign service. So it was quite an adventure. I went to international schools, traveled. I moved around every two to four years, which was fun, but it was also tough, you know, leaving friends. But it was really good perspective. You know, you meet people from all different types uh, around the country. You pick up different foreign languages. I speak Mandarin. And it's just awesome. So when I came to the United States for high school in 95, it felt kind of boring, frankly. You know, like when I was in Malaysia before Virginia, you know, we would be going out, you know, to the pubs and to the discotheques. (laughs) That's what they call them then. And it was just so much fun. And then in the States, it was just really quiet and just not a lot going on. So I really miss growing up overseas. Wow. I have a friend that actually is in his initiation right now to become a foreign service officer. It's been like a four-year process for him to get in because they've basically frozen their hiring process. Basically, in the last days of the Obama administration, they stopped bringing in new people. So that was right when he was trying to get in. But he's finally doing it. I heard it's like a 2% acceptance rate or something. I had no idea. But when I looked into the the exam, there's this written and oral exam. It spans over several days. I was like, wow, that's good. I'm impressed with you guys. Yeah, no, he's incredibly smart. Don't they give you a budget to live overseas and you don't have to pay taxes and there's also other kind of FI FI benefits to living that life? Yeah, I think they set you up with housing for sure. So free housing. And then they set your kids up for private international school education because you're not going to go to the local public schools because the systems are all different. So you end up going to the international schools. And then I think they pay a couple trips 
home to wherever your home base is in America twice a year, so summer and perhaps winter. And then I'm sure there's this tax benefit too. I think a lot of people who live overseas now, they can get the first 96000 or something of their income federal tax-free. So I'm sure there's something like that going on. So it's pretty good, but the pay I know is not so good because at the end of the day, it's working for the government. So it's a really rigid pay raise. I think you start maybe around 40000 and then it's just you know 3% pay raises every year, something like that. So it's not like you can suddenly make mega bucks, but you've got a really good lifestyle. Right. So I know you just had a son and it seems that you are firmly rooted in the Bay Area. Considering your upbringing, have you ever thought about moving around more with him or exposing him to a similar international life that you had? Absolutely. You know, I have this post that I want to publish about trying to create this amazing adventure for him and for us, frankly. You know, instead of reading about the Roman Empire, why not live in Rome? And so we've been thinking about either slow travel during the summers or winters, you know, so for four months a year. Or living abroad, maybe, you know, during the time he's in elementary school, one country, during the time he's in middle school, another country, and so forth, and high school, another country. Because I think it would be awesome. It would be an amazing experience. We're just waiting until after the age of five, because kids don't remember much of anything before five. So if you do that beforehand, it's kind of a waste of time. Right. That definitely makes sense. Although we stayed on the houseboat at FinCon, we stayed with Jeremy and Winnie and their son, Julian, and he's traveling around the world and he's only three. It's cute. It'd be interesting how that affects him. I think it's amazing, but I think it's more for the parents, right? So they're enjoying it. But from a kid's perspective, all the studies say it's really hard to remember anything before three. Like you can remember bits and pieces, but really the memory starts building after five. And I know this from my own experience because I was in Manila and then I went to Zambia when I was one. And then I was in Osaka, Kobe when I was five, six. It's really hard to remember. And I remember a lot because it's easier to remember when you have different countries in your life because you can pinpoint different times in your life. Whereas if you just stay in one place, kind of everything starts blending together. So we're just waiting at least till after three, if not after five. So then kind of why root so much in the Bay Area? Like why not rent? I know you're talking about getting a different house. What would be the benefit of that if you want to move? The benefit of leaving the Bay Area or staying in the Bay Area? Or like furthering investing in the Bay Area. Like you mentioned maybe upgrading your house in one of the podcast episodes I was listening to. Oh, right. I think there's a couple things. One is financial opportunity. You know, the Bay Area ecosystem is really strong and it's still relatively cheap compared to a lot of international cities around the world. If you look at prices in Hong Kong, Paris, London, Bay Area is cheap. I know like the media talks about how expensive it is. But if you just go outside the world and try to buy a place anywhere else in these major cities, it's relatively good value. So from a financial perspective, I strongly believe in 20, 30 years, housing prices will be much higher. And then the other reason is just planning for family. When you have a child, I think your house shrinks, in our case, by about 30%. And we had already downgraded to a smaller house in 2014 into our current house. And so when we added on a child our house shrank by another 30%. So it was not something that we really realized. But when you have a child, basically, the entire house becomes a play zone. And so all the toys and everything, it just kind of starts dominating everywhere. And you need to kind of quarantine some areas for your own space. So really, that's it. Financial and just for the family. So Gwen, I think that segues nicely into the question that you wanted to ask him. 
Yeah. So I, like many people in the FI community, read your article about the ideal middle class income is three hundred thousand dollars. So as somebody who does not live in the Bay Area, who lived in a pretty low cost of living area in the Midwest, I read that and immediately snorted and said, wow, that's ridiculous. (laughs) Because to me, spending that much money is just insane. Earning that much money would put you in the top, you know, 0.01% in the Midwest. So walk us through how you got there, because I don't think I can agree with that statement. So everything is geographically based. So I think the middle class income in the coastal cities is about 300000 So first of all, a lot of folks who just graduated from college who work at places like Facebook, Google, Apple, yada, yada, Uber, all these companies here in San Francisco, at least, their starting salary package is around hundred dollars to $150,000. So 22 to 23 years old, hundred dollars to $150,000. And that's salary. And then they have equity compensation, which could be, let's say, 50000 vesting over four years. So that's one basic thing that folks need to understand, that people are starting with very high salaries. By the time they become married and they want to buy a house when they're 30 years old, for example, their salaries will go higher. Their salaries will probably be at two hundred to 300000 per person. And then you add these two people together. They're at around three hundred to four hundred thousand dollars. Now, not everybody is working at these mega companies, but a lot of home buyers come from these companies, right? So less than one percent of the housing stock trades at any given moment. And so it is this small float of homes that are available for sale that dictate the prices of existing homes. So if you look at the median home price here in San Francisco and the Bay Area, it's about one point five to $1.6 million. So if you have a $300,000 household income, the median home price is five to 5.3 times the median $300,000 household income. So from any measure, five times, I think is kind of rich. There was a point in history where, you know, median home prices were only about three times your gross annual income, or maybe just two times. And if you look back to the sixties and seventies, you could easily buy a house for your annual salary or double your annual salary. So at $300,000, you got to spend 5x your annual salary. What I hope readers can take away from this is that just don't look at a number in vacuum. Look at the actual costs, right? So in my post and in the podcast, I talk about the actual costs of living. And this is why I want people to really think about not trying to kill themselves to come to a congested city like New York or San Francisco and stay here forever to just run on this treadmill and actually think about other amazing places around the country to live in, such as in the Midwest, because lifestyle is probably just as good and the costs are so much lower. So take, for example, Minnesota, Seattle, like figure out what is the median price there compared to your median income. And if you can find a ratio that's under five times I think that's kind of the median income that's for a medium middle class household. So your article really should have said 300,000 is the median income for middle class in San Francisco area. No, in the introduction, it talks about coastal cities just from, yeah, maybe the title. But if you just read the article, it clearly talks about coastal cities. I think I read the article. It wasn't such a splash for me because I have lived 
in the Bay Area. And also, whenever I read these things, I'm just like, oh, this is a strategy for financial independence. Like, I lived in the Bay Area for a year and a day. And that was a year and a day. And that was enough for me personally. But even just like living there for a year and a day and working in the heart of Silicon Valley, like you can accelerate your path so much. And for the people that they love it and they can continue to save and benefit from this situation, it can be a huge accelerator on the path to FI. So I read that and I'm like, yeah, I live there. I kind of get it. And I'm not opposed to living in big cities. I think actually if you want to be a FI super fast, you should live in a big city because it's much easier to get a high salary in a big city and minimize your expenses. There's always free things going on. There's always ways to find things to do cheaper. You don't have to have a car. You can have an apartment, you know, like minimize your expenses. But when you're in a low cost of living area, there's only so low you can go, right? There's only so much you can save. It's really the income focus. So it starts as early as you want to be financially independent. So when I was a kid growing up, I watched this show called Family Ties with Michael Keaton. And he was the guy who was always focused on trying to make money and all that stuff. So that really was interesting to me. And so I remember from you know age 13, 14, when I was living in Malaysia, I wanted to be an entrepreneur. I wanted to be wealthy so I could do whatever I wanted. And so that kind of inception since an early age led me down a path to focusing on industries that paid well. So it's totally logical that if you wanted to make money, you would try to join an industry that paid well. And so most of these industries are in the larger cities like New York and LA and San Francisco. And so that was my path. But I'm always fascinated to hear other people's paths. And maybe they realize they want to achieve financial independence later in life. But I remember really early on, I wanted to do it sooner. And I remember the first day, the first month of work was just horrible in banking. And I was not even in M&A and investment bank. I was in equities, so sales and trading. But we had to get in at 5.30 a.m. And we were leaving at 7.30, p.m. every single day. It was terrible. It's funny. I remember in college, I pursued a political science major because I enjoyed the topic. And I remember you know, hearing kids like, oh, my parents told me I should do accounting or my parents told me I should do finance. I remember being like, oh, like, that's so boring. And it's just funny now. I'm like, oh, that was smart. Now, obviously, the parents, they only knew what they knew. They maybe should have been telling their kids like, oh, you should pursue tech or whatever the next thing was. I mean, finance is still a good industry. You were in yeah. investment banking, right? But it's so it's funny, like that type of attitude is kind of like distasteful sometimes, but it can be really helpful in the FI trajectory too. I mean, it makes sense. If you want to make money, you should study something to get you an industry that pays the most. And I don't think there's any shame in that. And if you like that industry as well, I mean, for me, I liked investing in the stock market. I was in international equities. So I got to go to Asia two to four times a year with clients. I mean, I remember going to China and India when the markets were opening up. It was just a fascinating, fascinating time because I always wanted to go back to Asia to work, but somehow I just couldn't. So the next best thing was to work in finance and international equities in the Asian equities department. And it was just awesome. It was so awesome. But it was also really difficult if I didn't experience all those working hours in the very beginning. I don't think I would have saved and invested as much, you know, if I had like a cushy 8.30 to 5.30 job with an hour lunch break, I think I'd probably just be chilling and probably waking up maybe 10 years later and be like, oh, no, I hate my job now because it's 10 years of the same old thing. 
But I knew really early on that I didn't want to do finance for 20, 30 years like my parents did in the foreign service. So it just kicked my butt early on. Certainly. Although I am glad that there's a lot of people who aren't like us who choose the arts or something that's our nonprofit or something that's lower paying because the world would be so sad if it was just a bunch of people optimizing <laughs> for money. I mean, I was just like, so last night I decided I was going to go get a drink and I went to a local bar where they're playing live music and it was this couple from Alaska and they're like strumming their acoustic guitars and they're like, yeah, we quit our jobs and we're trying to make it big in the music industry. And I'm like, thank God there's people like them because, you know, doing their art or whatever. And then there's people like me who we aren't choosing to do that, but we're kind of like contributing by paying for that. It's almost mm -hmm. like a weird like Medici thing, you know, with like patrons of the arts. And think about it in terms of timing though. So if you can, let's say do your tech thing and make whatever it is you want to make and accumulate whatever it is you want to make in 15 years from the age of 22, you're 37 now, and then you can spend the next 30 years doing the arts or whatever. You know, it's like, oh, the billionaires and the multimillionaires or whatever, they're so rich and they're greedy people. But these are the people who donate the most amount of money and time to a lot of causes because they can. And so hopefully people can kind of change their mindset to you know, respect different paths for different people. Because look at Bill Gates now. He was the most ruthless businessman and entrepreneur for decades. And now he's one of the most gregarious people on earth. Definitely. And I think that segues into the next topic we want to talk about with you, which is timing. So, and I will caveat by saying like, my job is pretty sweet. We're just talking about how people are watching the World Cup. They pull down a giant projector for us. It is like, it's a nice job if I'm going to have a job. Mm -hmm. But family timing is important. So from my perspective, I am a female and I don't know if I can work straight till I'm 37 if my husband and I choose to have kids. And yeah. I know for you, like family timing played a big role in you and your wife's journey. So can you tell us more about that? So I really think it's important to have a conversation about children and your finances as soon as possible. If you know you want to have kids or even if you're thinking about having kids, my biggest mistake I think, was thinking that I needed too much money and waited too long. So I had my son a couple months before my 40th birthday. And to me, that's too old. I think the ideal age for me would have been 36. But I left my job, my day job at 34. You know, when you leave your job after you know 13 years, you're not too certain of your life. And you got to be like, well, maybe I made a mistake. I'm only 34. So you have to figure yourself out. And having kids is really difficult because it really screws up financial independence plans. I think the average time it takes to try to, to have a successful conception is about seven to eight months. That's the average. So every year you wait, gets harder and harder. And there are many, many, many stories about people who couldn't conceive, who went the IUI route or IVF route, had multiple miscarriages, and people don't talk about it. And now that I have a son, I wish I could rewind time and try to think about kids earlier. I think the ideal age to have kids in this crazy world is late 20s, early 30s. I think like for a lot of folks who are just working, 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 by age 30, you're going to feel like you've either made it or you're on the path to making it, hopefully. And that's when you can feel like, okay, maybe I have room to have family. And I'm talking about a lot of folks who are in the grind in these coastal cities. And what you realize is that once you have your child, he or she is amazing. You cannot love something as much as you love a child. And then you realize, well, 
if that's the case, I wish I had him or her sooner so he or she could be a part of my life for a longer period of time. So why do you say 36? Was there certain things in your life, like milestones that you wanted to cross and you crossed them before then? Yeah. So I didn't get married until I was 31. And 34 is when I left my full-time day job. So it was only after about two years of being unemployed and just writing on financial samurai and living off uh, passive income that I finally have the confidence to feel like, hey, I'm not going to starve on the streets. I think I'm going to be okay. And you know what? I have now the time and the confidence to start a family. You know, we always hear about how much it costs to have kids and how tiring it is to take care of a child. And I wanted to be financially well off enough so that I could take care of both my wife and my son without either of us having to work, or at least me not having to work, because I wanted at least one of us to stay home and take care of him. And, you know, emotionally, I needed to be ready as well, because it's just so much work. It's so much harder taking care of a child full time than going to work. You know, I think a day job is like, it's like a vacation compared to parenthood. You know, there's no time off. The stakes are so high, right? If one look away, he could bonk his head or fall off a coffee table or something. And whereas at a day job, you know, you can just go watch the World Cup, you can get paid, and you can just chill out. Obviously, you're going to have to perform every so often, but it's so much easier, a day job. And I wanted to just be there for him as much as possible. I felt like finally at the age of 36, I felt okay, my crazy decision to leave a well-paying job in finance to just do what I want to do wasn't so crazy after all. And I was ready. I just had so many friends and people I knew who had kids and then ended up divorcing. And it was just really sad because obviously having two parents is better than one parent. But yet think about how bad it must have been knowing that two is better than one, and yet they still divorced, right? So probably, I, you know, I think I overanalyzed things. I was just trying to be too sure in my financial situation. And that's why, 36. Right. You know, Sam, it's actually really funny. I didn't even know you had a wife until you announced that you're having your son. As I don't think that you ever talked about her on the blog. Uh, I talk about her sometimes. sometimes. Well, now you do. Yeah. So, well, that's because we have a family now. Right. I include her because she does so much. Yeah, it was just really funny because I was like, whoa, I had no idea he was married. And then come to find out you've been married like the whole time. And I'm like, I didn't even know when we had tacos at FinCon. I had no idea. It just never came up, I guess. Yeah, so we're talking about tacos. Yeah, well, you were busy shoving your face full of amazing tacos. That's why. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you mentioned the IUI and the IVF. And we're actually going to bring someone on to talk about those costs, which I was shocked yeah. it can cost $100,000. For that. That's if you're lucky. Too. If you're lucky. Yeah. I know someone personally who is maybe experiencing some of these issues. And if you went surrogacy, it could also cost like $100,000. Like there's serious yeah. costs to this. And so the delay, and I'm, that's something I'm very aware of. And actually the last companies I've worked at, they offer like egg freezing, but yeah. apparently that only has a 25% success rate. Yeah. The percentage rates are low. Yeah. So the percentage, if you are normal, fertile person, the percentage of conception each try is like around 10%, right? Mm-hmm. Maybe 15% because the average time it takes is seven to eight months. And then it just kind of ticks, ticks, ticks down. And there's no fighting biology. And it's really hard to try to have it all. So if you and your husband know you want kids, I would try sooner rather than later. I really would because it's just unbelievable. And there's no perfect time. 
but obviously have a plan because I think our kids deserve the best. Our kids are so reliant on us that we need to get our finances right. We need to get our relationships right. But I would encourage you guys to try sooner rather than later. Yeah, definitely. And there's actually more interest in this in the tech area. One of the people I played field hockey with in college, she just started a company called Modern Fertility. And it's basically for the core demographic that I am in to get all of our hormones tested to see where our fertility stands. So it's kind of interesting. It'll be interesting to see how that company does. I think it's it's so important. I think hopefully it'll do well. More people need to be educated on the costs and the risks and the difficulties of conception and going through conception and conceiving. It's really a miracle. I remember as a kid growing up watching these stupid talk shows like Maury Povich and all that, and there'll always be like family dramas and, oh, you've got four kids and there's another kid you don't even know about. And surprise, here he is, right? And so I always had in my mind, oh, kids must be really easy to have and have a lot and it's no big deal. But the reality is, man, if you wait until your late 30s and 40s, it's really difficult. Yeah. My mom was 38 when I was born. Mm-hmm. And that I'm with you there. I feel like it's a little too old. Because I grew up in, when I was in end of high school, beginning of college, my mom was in her 50s. And people were like, oh, is that your grandma? No, that's my mom. <laughs> yeah, but not even that. I mean, part of the reason why I think the benefit of starting young too, I lived in Colorado Springs. And at that time, my husband had a lot of friends in their 40s. And I met the fittest people I've ever met in my life, living their best life. Like they were mountain biking, they were hiking. I had some limiting beliefs about getting older and aging. And what I saw in them, mm. I was like, I want that. So it kind of makes me want to try to get through the kids process younger so that I could have that freedom in the lifestyle that I saw in these people. And the one thing I didn't realize, and I think maybe we really don't realize until we have kids, is that not only are we younger to take care of our kids, but our grandparents, their grandparents are younger as well, if they are so blessed to have grandparents still. So now my parents are in their 70s, and they're not too energetic. Yeah, yeah, it's just really interesting to compare and contrast my boyfriend's family to my family. His is a very young family. They all had kids in their 20s. And so his grandparents are actually only 10 years older than my parents. And so it's striking to see the difference. He has all four of his grandparents, and I have none. All of my grandparents have passed away. It's sad. However, just know that I really think kids will derail the path to financial independence. And it's not so much the money aspect. It's the energy and time. There's no more energy and time left in me. I'm just pooped every day. Okay. Yeah, definitely. So, and I know we've covered some child-free people or one and done folks. We've covered adoptions. We have other episodes with that. We are going to cover the cost of this in future, but we would like to maybe have a conversation in the Facebook group after if anyone listening has comments about family timing and FI. I think this would be a good discussion. Yeah. Okay. So let's segue on to the last core topic we want to talk to you about, Sam. You are famous for the engineering your layoff knowledge story. I know you did it. I know you helped your wife through it. Please. Yeah. When I first heard about this concept, I was like, what? So for anyone who has not heard about it, please like take us through it. So a long, long time ago, there was a company and employee loyalty where you could stay at a company for 20, 30 years, get a pension, retire, and have enough money for the rest of your life. Now we live in a super competitive world, globalization, everybody's out to eat our lunch, and there's no more employee loyalty. Right? You can get fired in a second. It doesn't really matter anymore. How to engineer your layoff is a discussion that I want to implement in everybody who wants to leave their job early and do whatever else they want to know that they have more power as an employee than they think. 
So instead of quitting your job, you want to negotiate a severance because when you have severance, there's several things that happen. One, you get a lump sum check. Two, you can be qualified for unemployment benefits because you were laid off. Three, you probably get some healthcare benefits in terms of COBRA. And then four, it looks fine on your record. You just were rift reduction in force. And, you know, it takes a lot of negotiating, but a lot of understanding in terms of your position of power. And I have a lot of article examples on how to engineer your layoff on Financial Samurai. But the core concept is essentially the reason why you are hired is because you bring more value to your firm. Otherwise, you wouldn't have been hired. You would have been not hired or you would have been fired long ago. So when you want to exit, and we're not talking about you join the firm for six months or a year, and then you want to engineer your layoff and negotiate severance. We're talking about people who've been there for you know at least three years, maybe four or five. The longer, the better, frankly, because it shows that you are a valuable employee. The crux is you're a valuable employee that if you leave, something bad is going to happen to the company, right? Whether you're a revenue producer, let's say you bring let's say $10 million to the firm and you leave, that $10 million goes down to $3 million and the $7 million goes to a competitor, for example. So companies don't want that to happen. There's this typical, oh, give two weeks notice. But as a manager myself and talking to a lot of managers, every single manager wants a bigger heads up notice. Think about if you're a landlord of a property, do you want to have a one-year heads up notice from your tenant saying that they're going to be moving to Africa for a job? Or do you want them to tell you 30 minutes beforehand, right before Christmas? So in employment, it's the same thing. Managers want a heads up so they can plan for the future. You obviously, if you've been there for several years, you're a valuable member of the company. And so your goal is to know your worth by know what you're bringing to the company and to be able to provide a proper transition out for your company so your company loses the least amount of productivity and revenue and so they can transition someone else on board. Because when someone quits, it's a disaster, especially if they're a valuable employee. Because it takes like, you know, sometimes three months, six months to find a replacement. And then they've got to go through three to six months of training. It's massive productivity loss. So if you know you're going to leave your job anyway, you might as well jockey for a severance negotiation and a plan, a slow plan transition out. Does that make sense? It does make sense. I think... I would be worried if a future employer called the past employer and said, is this employee eligible for rehire? I know HR can only answer yes or no, and they typically don't ask any more questions beyond like, did they work here at these times? So if you do this, you're still eligible for rehire technically, right? Sure. Or it depends how you left it with them. Sure. I mean, obviously, you always want to leave in good terms. You don't want to burn those bridges. But if you were rift, reduction in force, or laid off, that's fine because this is not through fault. It's very different from getting fired from cause, like cause, like sexual harassment, or you're stealing, you know, the copy printer paper, stuff like that, you know, stupid stuff like that. Being laid off is not something shameful. It's like, okay, you know, every year, a company has to lay off about 5%, 10%, or they're, they're reorganizing the charts, whatever it is. And so it's something very common, especially now that people change jobs every one to three years. Now, 30, 40 years ago, it might have been more of a black mark. But now it's like, oh, it's really common. Yeah, I uh, tried to get a severance package from my previous employer. They were doing reduction in force and offering early retirement packages to people. But I was neither senior enough, nor had I been at the company long enough 
to really make it worth it. I think I would have gotten like two weeks. Yeah. And there, there are a lot of technicalities that people don't understand. So there's this thing called the WARN Act. It's called the Worker Adjustment Retraining Notification Act. Basically, a lot of people, you know, they think they got a severance, where in the actuality, it was a mandatory, federally mandated WARN Act pay of between I think it's one to three months of your salary. So if you got, let's say, a quote severance of between one to three months of pay, it actually wasn't a severance. A severance is actually on top of the mandatory WARN Act pay. And then there's a lot of other things. So nowadays, you know how social media blows everybody up, you know, whether it's allegations about misconduct from someone or, you know, a bad review for company service. We're all blowing everybody up, up on social media. And so companies really, really understand this. And they're also really protective about their reputation. So employees also need to know that social media is in their favor in terms of negotiating severance, because you see so many cases, so many precedent cases where a disgruntled employee completely blows up a company and it causes tremendous harm and damage, not only to the stock price or to the reputation to being able to hire new people. So this is something else to be aware of. I just want people, employees to know they have more power than they realize. It's a really touchy time right now. But if you can understand the power dynamics, it's not so much David versus Goliath, the big corporation with their 10 corporate lawyers versus little you. And I wanted to empower those people through my book and through the several blog examples of how people have done it. Don't just quit. I don't think I understand the social media example. Like, are you saying that if you do a severance, you sign an NDA and the employer feels better because you're guaranteeing you're not going to talk about it? Or what do you mean? That's exactly it. So a severance package is an NDA where you promise not to write something bad about them or discredit them or something. And in return, you just get your severance and whatever else it might be as part of that package. And you can say it's hush money, but it's something you can agree to or not agree to. Some people don't agree to it. There's this guy who wrote an op-ed in the New York Times, I think, called Why I Left Goldman Sachs. And, you know, you just kind of blew up the company. And obviously, he didn't get a severance, but he did get a book deal. <laughs> and then <laughs> right. there are a lot of other examples here in the Bay Area. I mean, Susan Fowler for Uber, right? She wrote a blog post saying that she was harassed by a engineer manager and HR didn't do anything about it. So what did her blog post end up doing? It ended up tarnishing Uber's reputation as a really bro culture company. It caused resignation of the CEO and other C-level executives. And it's a place where, I don't know, a lot of people decided not to work because of that culture. So think how powerful that one blog post was by Susan Fowler that changed everything. Now, she could have done a different route. She could have had these hard, hard conversations with HR and more senior management, basically said, look, if you don't come to an agreement with me, I'm going to write about this. And you bet your bottom dollar now, if someone were to say, hey, guys, I'm having this problem with this colleague who's harassing me you know that they're going to perk up and listen and try to fix the problem. And if you know there's something even bigger, there's probably a lot of wiggle room for a servants. Think about all the executives out there who get parachuted out with multi-million dollar servants packages. I think there's this, this famous case, like this Yahoo president or CEO, not Mercer Mayor, but some dude, he lied on his resume and he got like a hundred million dollar servants package while the stock went down 30%. So I want people to know that 
if people like that who can destroy companies get $100 million severance packages, you as an employee who's you know worked and done a good job can surely get several thousand, if not a hundred thousand, obviously depending on your compensation and your, and your tenure there. Right. Yeah. And I must say with Susan Fowler's case, I mean, her boss was trying to have sex with her. This was awful. This was like literally, thank God that she didn't get a severance package and that story came out because that was so bad that it just needed to be shared. There's many Susan Fowler cases. So, and think about it this way. You can also get a severance package and then blow them up years later. I mean, what are they going to do? Once the story's out, it's out once the money has been into your bank account. You know, these are just things you got to think about as an employee. Obviously, it's best to work things out. You know, most lawsuits, for example, they don't go to trial. They get settled out of court, something like 90 plus percent. Maybe it's more. So what I'm saying is if you're going to quit your job anyway, there's no downside in trying to negotiate a severance. Use precedence. Understand how other colleagues who got laid off, what did they get? You know, and hey, if that sounds good to you raise your hand, you might be saving someone else who actually needs the job from getting laid off. And as a manager, I love that. Like, it's so stressful if you're a manager, when your boss says, hey, you got to lay off two people on your team. That is terrible. Who wants to do that? That's like the worst thing ever. But if someone can understand the stresses that a manager goes through and can understand how to negotiate a severance, hey, if you want to leave and save me from laying someone off who doesn't want to get laid off, Hey, let's talk. Let's figure it out. That's a pretty big win. Right. And I think we're, we were providing extreme examples before of like the sexual harassment or these other situations. But in the situation with your wife, what people may not realize is like she had a really good rapport with her employer. And in fact, like a year or less after the severance, they wanted her to come back. So you don't have to be in this situation with your employer, which is like a standoff. I mean, you could be a good hustling employee for them. And in fact, that probably makes it easier for you to negotiate this. No, Exactly. The most common pushbacks I get from people on how to engineer your layoff is, oh, why would a company lay off a high-performing employee? And that shows the lack of self-awareness or maybe awareness about both parties, right? So you're just thinking about yourself. I'm a great employee. Why would anybody give me a severance and lay me off? It shows that you don't understand the stresses that the manager goes through or how you are deemed by the company. And so from my wife's case, yeah, she got a okay sermons. It wasn't amazing. We really tried to get something amazing for her. But at the end of the day, you know, they allowed her to come back, earn the same amount of money and work only two days a week for several months and then get that severance. And by okay, I mean, let's give people a number. I mean, it was a six figure severance and you guys got to use it to do all these cool things for 10 months or however. Yeah, it was pretty good. She felt like she was winning. So that's the other thing. It's like when you walk away and you feel like you're winning, it's a great feeling. And when you walk away from your job because you quit, it kind of feels a little empty, especially if you spent a lot of time there. Because, you know, our parents probably had some kind of pension or something that could tie them over. Whereas nowadays, it's, it's so ruthless. You just boom, 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 you're out of there. So hopefully people can just read some examples and just get some more confidence. There's nothing to lose. There's no downside to trying to have a heart to heart talk with your managers and plan for your future, you know. If you know you want to leave, try to plan it out six months in advance. When you first came out with this book, I was ethically, I felt like I was opposed to it. But now, so I listened to the podcast episode where you explained your wife's situation in more detail. And I, I would recommend anyone who's like more curious about this topic to listen to that. And then you mentioned you also have, is it an ebook? I have an ebook. You have yeah. an ebook. Okay. So we'll link to your ebook. 
Cool. I'll give you a code. I'll figure it out later and you put it in the show notes. Cool. That's awesome. I'm kind of on the fence about it. But yeah, you, Gwen, you said that you would have, you actually tried to request this. So ethically, you don't, you don't think this is bad. Nope. No. Okay. I mean, think about it. What is the ethical dilemma when companies don't offer pensions? They only offer crappy 401ks with maybe 3% matching for most companies. Some have no matching. And they fire people or lay people off at will all the time. I don't understand the ethical issue, especially especially if you can negotiate and not leave them in the lurch. Think about it this way. How about this? I think it might be ethically irresponsible for you to just leave your company and say, I quit when you have people relying on you, your clients relying on you, you know. I think it's more ethically responsible to say, hey, let's figure out a six-month plan. And in return, let's... Yeah, and you can train your replacement. That's way better. I didn't get a severance plan, but I did leave after like a five or six-month notice at my last employer. And I had time to train my replacement, which was huge. And all of the management were very grateful. That's huge. And that opens the doors for you to come back if you want or get a great recommendation. See, that is forward thinking where... You're thinking about other people, and that's going to help you get places. I think part of it is that I don't believe that companies should offer pensions. Like, how can you project future earnings in a world that's changing so fast? Like, think about a typewriter company. Where are they now, you know? Well, a pension is simply a luring tool to get new employees. So now, not many companies offer pensions. Companies don't have to offer pension. But let's say company X offers a pension and your company Y you better offer a pension, otherwise the employees in this highly competitive world aren't going to go to your company for the same pay. Yeah, but I'm saying how can you pay out the pension? Like how can you realistically think that you'll be able to pay out a pension in 25 years? Like think of all the companies that were just booming and they're just not. Like what happened to BlackBerry, you know? Yeah, no, for sure. And so, yeah, less and less companies offer pensions. Yeah. Okay, so I won't derail us on this. And I think this is a really cool topic. I hope that anyone interested does do a follow-up. I think it's about time for the final two, Gwen. Okay, so... If people want to learn more about you, where can they find you? They can find me on financialsamurai.com on my about page. And they can find me on Twitter at Financial Samurai with no I. And I set that up because a long time ago without the I because that was the character limit. Awesome. And Gwen, last question. All right, Sam, what is your wildest dream? You know what's so funny? Every fourth dream, I dream of flying. And whenever I'm bored or whatever... I try to think before I go to bed, let's have a flying dream. So my wildest dream is to fly and to go anywhere in the world and very quickly. And my second wildest dream is to create a perpetual giving machine. And I've always kind of fantasized, oh, what if I won the lottery? And I felt like I've already won the lottery. So I've been really focused to try to create content that other people might care about or might be too shy to talk about or ask. You know, like when you're in class, you've got a question, but you don't want to raise your hand because you don't want to feel like an idiot. But I want to write these type of you know pieces for people to digest and talk about whether they're controversial or not so that there's a home. And I also wanted to uh, have that content live on for a long time so that my son can read it and other people can read it. You want to be a giving tree, a human giving tree. Perpetual giving machine long after I'm gone. I think that'd be really cool. Cool. That would be awesome. Thank you so much, Sam, for coming on. We appreciate it. And we're definitely going to invite you back for round two. Sounds good. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to today's episode. Go to our website, firedrillpodcast.com to continue the discussion and get the link to our private Facebook group. If you like us, leave us a review on iTunes. If you're like me, you have no idea how to do that. So in the podcast app or in iTunes, search for Fire Drill Podcast, find it, 
click the reviews tab, and write something to make my mother proud of me. We read every single review and want to say thank you from the bottom of our hearts for making this podcast possible.